Father, we just pray that you guide our fellowship tonight and allow us to edify each other and glorify you, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to come before you and study your word. We pray that you guide our discussion of your word and that your Holy Spirit uses the word to change our lives and direct us into maturity. Thank you for your blessing and mercy, and thank you so much for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, and the hope and the glory that is included in the faith in him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining me on this chilly evening. I don't know, is this tonight going to be like the coldest of the season so far? I think we're getting down to 18 or something like that. Oh yeah, I got to follow my wife's direction. I'm not supposed to ask questions from up here because it's awkward or it's awkward for everyone. But I still want to ask a question and just sit here and look at you guys and wait for an answer because to me, that's funny. I find that awkwardness humorous. But that being said, we'll move into the study. So we're going to be starting in Deuteronomy 21 tonight. And if you remember last week, just as a quick recap and an overall recap of the book, Deuteronomy is the treaty that God is making with the people of Israel before they go into the promised land. Now remember, everything that is written down in this book, Israel attempts to fulfill and fails from this point forward. We never see Israel fulfill all the words in this book. And then last week, we were in a section that is commonly referred to as the war manual, and while it may not apply directly to us because we're not in the same situation as the Israelites moving into the promised land, it does still provide some insight into spiritual warfare. And in this week, we start moving into the more traditional laws that the Israelites were to uphold when they enter into the land. And looking at them first glance, they can seem kind of scattershot or buckshot into the book here because we, have, we start off with a law on unsolved murders then marrying female captives, and then inheritance, a disobedient firstborn, and so on. But if we look deeper at this, and we kind of see the underlying theme that's running through the backbone of this chapter, it is one of equality and true social justice. And that word is a hot topic word nowadays because it's used a lot for or to describe injustice by atheists and communists. But for us, when we look at the social justice of the Lord here and we look at what it really means to be equal before God, this chapter starts to expose some of those elements that we can take with through ourselves or afterwards, move out through those doors there and practice holiness in our relationships with others, which is what godly social justice actually looks like. And so to start, if we're going to look at themes, and I, and I want you to kind of follow me here as we move through, and we'll bring it back together at the end, but if we look at themes running through here is that God is demonstrating through the use of irony or the use of almost generalities the equality that is present when you become especially a member of his covenant or when you're accepted into his covenant. Covenant. There's an equality there 
that doesn't pay attention to background circumstances or situations, and there's a worth inherent no matter who you are that is granted by God that the entire community has to recognize. Everyone has to recognize that God-given worth. And we see that starting off here in chapter 21, verse 1, it says, If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is, in the near, or that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked, and it has not pulled in a yoke, and that the elders of the city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord, and by their word every dispute and every assault shall be settled." And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall testify, our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed, except atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Now, one of the key, there's a couple key things to kind of focus in on here, or at least for me when I was reading the passage, things that came to my attention. First and foremost, I was wondering how hard is it to break the neck of a heifer? I assume that's a bull, right? And you guys seen a lot of those things have the big lump on the back of it. Again, not from Wyoming. You guys probably know heifers a lot better than I do. But getting your hands on that thing and breaking his neck, that is probably a very difficult task, especially after you dragged it across the countryside and you found a place with running water and that hasn't been plowed or it hasn't been, it hasn't been mowed. But on the other side of it too, notice how the victim for this act of atonement to take place, there is no qualifying details about the victim. Doesn't say they had to confirm it was a Jew from the, from the land. Doesn't say that, it had, that this person had to be known or unknown. It is, if this person is discovered, then the closest city has to take some form of responsibility for this action. Now imagine if we actually took the time to apply that today, where if they found one of the transients that came off the train in Cheyenne here that we see downtown, and, and we found them in an alleyway dead, we have no idea who killed them, so they pulled out a measuring tape and they find the closest church, and then the closest church has to get down and, and pray for this individual and play, pray for forgiveness for his murder. Now of course I'm not suggesting that to be a common thing within Christianity, but what I am suggesting here is that the community had to take some responsibility for the actions that were going on in and around it. We don't know anything about the man here in this hypothetical murder, but more than likely, the closest town could recognize this person. I doubt Israel was just full of strangers roaming around waiting to be murdered. 
And more than likely, if we're just going to assume here, people that end up in certain situations are usually having other details in their life that put them in that situation. For instance, my little brother was a drug addict for a very long time, and he was recovering, but when he chose to hang out with drug addicts, more than likely, he was going to get arrested. And it wasn't because it was just some random, the cops just saying, oh, let's go get Matthew Boisel and lock him up. It was because of the people he was associating with and the things he was doing. And so the people and the elders from the closest town here if this situation were to arise, more than likely would recognize the individual that was murdered. And there were probably plenty of excuses for them to say, this isn't our issue. This isn't our problem. This isn't, this isn't on us. But what God is telling them here is that none of those identifying things that we just talked about or lifestyle traits or anything had any effect or any impact on the responsibility of God's people to approach the Lord on behalf of this blood that was shed. And that, that signifies an implied worth of this victim that is slain here. That no matter what the circumstances are around his murder, he is still worth that heifer and he's still worth that running water and that unplowed land. And in fact, I think that if we look at the terms used here, we see that it was a heifer that was not supposed to be tied up to a plow or basically unworked, not used for any work. And we saw that language previously used for the sacrificial animals. Now, heifers being a sacrificial animal kind of goes 50-50 on, on whether or not it would have been accepted. But the whole point is, is that this was a costly event for whatever city or town that was going to go out and have to plead for atonement for this man's murder here. This was a young bull that was full of potential. He had yet to see his first work towards making that money back for his owner if he was going to be a work animal. And then we even look at the field and what we see there in an unplowed or uncut field, again, with running water going through it, again, we see untapped potential. And I think that's what a lot of the symbolism behind this sacrifice or this request for atonement by the elders is showing us is that this person cut down and they cannot find the, the offending party or the person that is guilty is symbolic of untouched potential that is yet to be realized by this individual. And that has to be made up for. That has to be considered. And for us, looking at that, we have to realize that there's an entire city out there of untouched potential. And when we see these local news stories of whether they're tragedies of actual murder or accidental deaths, as the religious body in this community, as the elders, so to speak, as the representatives to God, we should feel some sort of, I don't want to say responsibility, but we should feel some sort of loss to that. 
that should impact us and touch us in a certain way. And I think a lot of times when we look at the things that go on around us with people that we may not associate with a whole lot or people that we may not be connected with, we kind of can tend to blow it off of, oh, well, that's not our problem. Oh, well, he shouldn't have been running with that crowd. Oh, well, he should have got his stuff together. Instead of actually seeing what God sees, that true untapped potential that has now gone to waste, that, if, that God wills and wants to see to come to salvation and could be used for the glory of Christ. And so moving on, we get into, and this kind of ties it to the previous chapter of the war manual here, we see marrying of female captives, starting in verse 10, when you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house and you shall shave her head and pare her nails and shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be your husband and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants, but you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. Now, I don't need anyone coming up here using this as an excuse for divorce, saying, well, my, I no longer delight in my wife. I tell you what, if you go to war and you take a city and you capture her, then you can follow this verse here. But besides that, it tells us something a little bit deeper about introduction into the community of God in the respect that that gains upon that introduction. When we see the terms here, and you bring her into her home, she shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured. Basically, this is that initial purification of bringing her into the community of the Jewish community making her an Israelite, bringing her into the Israelite household. And that is such a shocking kind of event that the Bible even actually says, after these things are done, this wife needs to have a month, before you do anything, before you touch her, she needs to have a month to mourn over either the loss that she experienced or this new kind of transitional phase that she's been thrown into here. So she needs to have a time of adjustment. And then, once she goes through that time of adjustment, she is now a full-fledged wife. Her previous status as an enemy, her previous status as a slave, her previous status as a captured individual, no longer applies. This new status is what she's going to be, is going to direct the way in which she's going to be treated moving here on forward. And that's what it means here, starting in uh, verse 14. But if you no longer delight in her, say it just doesn't work out. Say after this month, she just can't adjust to the new customs and the new ways of the Jewish people. She can't adjust to her new home. Um, there's a lot of people or a lot of commentators that believe that this is talking about a polygamous situation. So the warrior already has a wife at home. He takes a new wife, and you just can't, she can't adjust to this 
new kind of blended household. Then you shall let her go where she wants. You shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humbled her, is a better way to put it. This word's that it humiliated her, but since you have humbled her. And what this is saying here is that it doesn't matter what her previous status was. As soon as she crosses the threshold into the covenant of God, that demands a certain level of respect, a certain level of treatment, and a certain level of freedom afterwards. If the relationship just isn't working out. And the way we can translate this to our current situation is as a people of God who are reborn into a new covenant whenever we have another individual that enters into that new covenant with us no matter how long we've been there no matter how long we've been a part of the Christian faith there is a certain level of respect and dignity that is given to all the people that come through those doors, especially those that are co-heirs with you in Christ. And speaking of and keeping with that God-given dignity that is not decided by the husband before he kicks the wife out, it's decided by God in her position within the covenant, we see it reinforced down here with the inheritance of an unwanted son. Starting in verse 15, if a man has two wives the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children. And if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possession as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the first... Let me reword that. He may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is in the firstfruits of his strength and has the right of the firstborn. And so in this, again, we see it isn't the parents that determine the status of the individual. By element of birth order, it's the Lord that determines who is the firstborn and who is not the firstborn. And so, that being said, I was worried that window's going to, do you guys hear that? I thought that window was going to fall on me. But anyways, that being said, it is God who determines the status of the individual and the dignity and the respect that they deserve. And this verse here, or this passage, has strong allusions to the story of Jacob and his wives here. And of course, as we know, Jacob had a wife, unloved wife Leah, loved wife Rachel. The unloved one was the first one to bear his children. And in fact, if we go back to that story, if you look in Genesis, I want to say 35, but when Jacob's giving his blessing, the term he uses to describe Reuben as his firstborn is similar to what we see here in verse 17 where he says, for he is the first fruits of his strength. And what that term means here, if we were to take it directly out of Hebrew, it is basically saying he is the beginning of his blessing. 
the firstborn from the unloved one was the beginning of all other blessings that he had. And so that firstborn is due, I guess you would say, some respect by the fact that everything that followed the firstborn was initialized by him. And when we see that it's a double portion, what that means again, specifically, is a double mouthful. And that's a traditional firstborn right in this custom and in this culture, not only amongst the Israelites, but also amongst the Canaanites. It basically, if you were to divide everything up evenly between all the siblings, the firstborn would get double of what everyone else would be getting here. But the point and the overall point here is that the parents don't get to decide the honor and respect that fall on the children that is God who decides that, that status. And it is God who decides that position. And so if we look at that, if God's will is strong enough to overcome the relationship between the parent and the child, how much more should it direct the way we treat each other within the church here? And that when we look at each other, I think sometimes we can let outward appearances decide the respect and the compassion that we're willing to show other people. And especially, like I told you earlier, my, uh, my little brother was a drug addict, and it took me a long time for me to have any compassion on that disease or that captivity when I viewed that in anyone else. And I realized through verses like this that it was me trying to decide the respect and the status that this person earned instead of letting God show me and dictate to me his will that his son equally died for this person as he did for me. And so as far as status and importance go, we're the same. We're exactly the same. And so that being said we can extrapolate from the relationship of a parent and a son here into our relationship with each other. Because, and I'm getting ready to give away uh, a spoiler, because it's coming at the end too, because we are all co-heirs to the same parent when we experience that rebirth that comes through Christ. We all have that same and equal status, and we all deserve to treat each other with that same and equal status. So to totally flip it around now, we go to the rebellious son, starting in verse 18. It says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, he will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out of the elders, or bring him out to the elders of the, his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And so now we have where the passage before was protecting the child from the parent. Now we got a passage protecting the parent from the child. 
And basically what's at fear here and what's implied in this is that this son is a firstborn son. He's the heir. And his attitude and his behavior is putting or risking the security of the entire family. So this isn't just a son who was disobedient or strong-willed. Trust me, I got seven boys. They can be strong-willed. But what is here, especially with the language used for being a a drunkard and a uh, glutton, is that this person's lifestyle is leading him on a path that is endangering the rest of the family. Now again, we can look at this and we can use this to justify our judgmental attitudes for others. But what I want you to see here is the contrast with this passage with the one before it. Previously, we have the unwanted son being elevated by God and saying this status is determined not by the parents, but by the birth order or indirectly by God. Now we have the the wanted son. And possibly because of his station and his confidence within the covenant, he thinks he has the liberty to go due to his status and take advantage of not only those around him, but take advantage of that covenant in which he's born into. And so what we see here is a child that doesn't understand or possibly understands but doesn't want to give the credit of his status to the Lord because if we look everywhere else in the Bible, especially in the commandment, a child's ability to obey their parents is directly tied with their treatment to the Lord. It is an indirect, the way in which a son acts to his mother and father is an indirect signifier in the way God takes it when that person is disobedient. It is viewed the same way as this idolatry. And we can see that in the punishment. Stoning was reserved for very few crimes. One of those being idolatry, other being sexual sins. Murder being another one. But it wasn't just given out because someone was a little angry. This is someone that is totally taking advantage of that covenant they are in and taking advantage of their status and station and used it for selfish liberties. And so we see that their status within the covenant is not protected by blood alone. And that's an example that Jesus gave us in the gospel. Remember when he was taking on the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he would often tell them, your status as a son of Abraham isn't as secure as you think it is. And likewise here, this, this son, this disobedient son that is being described here is now become a source of impurity and unholiness within the nation 
instead of representing the covenant which he was born into. And his position as a son doesn't change the possible, or not the possible, the definite outcome that awaits him once his parents have had enough. And then finally, going into verse 22, we see a hanged man on a tree, and we know that if you've read your Bible for a little bit of time even, this is a verse that is commonly used and tied to Jesus. But starting in verse 22, it says, If a man has committed a crime punishable, punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him in the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so you see the term there, the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. If you remember in verse 1, that's how the passage stopped. It's a framing technique that you commonly see. This is supposed to be taken as one section, one passage, and related together. But on the specific verse, the man that is hanged by on a tree, this is after he is dead. And so the way it would work was the individual would commit a crime that is punishable more than likely by stoning, he would be stoned to death, and then for crimes that were especially egregious, they were to be impaled onto a tree on display. It was for public display. The curse here that is mentioned is not because he's attached to a tree. The tr him being attached to a tree instead is a representative of being cursed by God. And so when you see this, it ain't the fact that a tree was involved automatically includes, oh shoot, this guy died in a tree, so he must be cursed. Instead, it was a public billboard to show everyone this man was cursed by God. And that was done by impaling the person onto a tree. But we see this commonly used as a verse tied to Jesus, especially in Galatians 3.13, which states, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And he's directly quoting Deuteronomy 21.23 here. And again, through the filter of the New Testament, we now see the full level of equality that God is demonstrating through this passage and through this chapter. 2 Corinthians 5.21 states, for, your, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we know, Christ did not belong on that tree. He lived the perfect life, but as a representative of us, as our priest, he became the atoning sacrifice for sin, and not only in death, but in public display of humiliation. And I think sometimes that's left out of our kind of gospel awareness was not just the fact that he died for our sins, but like this verse, he was displayed publicly for everyone to see 
as an example of a curse of God. And that was done on our behalf, as Paul says, by becoming a curse for us. And in this way, he redeemed us from the curse of the law, hung up like a common criminal. And that's what the great equalizer of Christianity is. Is that we never reach a point to where everyone in this room didn't equally need that sacrifice. And so as a result, we can never reach a point to where we can look at other people and attempt to place a status or worth on them that is anything other than the worth that God put on them, which is the worth of his son. And so we have to recognize that as a people. That it doesn't matter if it's five minutes in the faith or 40 years in the faith, there is an equality that everyone is taken at the same level, with the same respect, in the same worth. And so in closing, I think there's four lessons that we can kind of take from this, and especially looking at it through the eyes of the New Testament. First and foremost, every life is known to God and has a potential within God's covenant. And the Bible in the New Testament speaks clearly of this. And as much as the, uh, the Reformed people hate these verses that I'm about to read, it expresses a worth that goes and extends to every single person. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And then one of my favorite, 1 John 2.2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the entire world. That is the worth of every single human being. Now, whether or not they come to accept Christ is a different debate that we can have as far as Jesus' sacrifice. But we know when you walk out these doors, no matter who you see out there, no matter what they're doing, no matter what state they're in, they are worth Jesus Christ, at least to God. And it is his will that the gospel be brought to these people. And it is his will that they be saved. And so that should remind us whenever we're looking at the outside world, especially through judgmental eyes, that person was worth exactly the same amount as you were. And that's the truth. And then moving on, everyone is equal under the new covenant. Galatians 3, 26-29 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Where the firstborn were to receive double portion, when we get into that new birth, Jesus Christ is that firstborn. As a result, we are all equal heirs in Christ. There is no distinction. So again, we know the worth of every individual. That worth is Jesus Christ. Now everyone sitting in the room next to you as a Christian has the same worth as a co-heir and as, a, as an offspring of Abraham. There is no difference between any of us. There may be differing gifts, and some of those gifts may place people in positions that are more visible than others, but that has nothing to do with the worth that everyone in here has. And there isn't a single person who is a Christian within this congregation that is more valuable or more indispensable than another. We are all equally heirs. And then also, if we're co-heirs, then we need to be treated as such. There's a certain level of respect and dignity that goes along with that. For you did not receive, according to Romans 8, 15 through 17, the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also be glorified with him. Now that last portion is a discussion for another time there. But we got to start with the general fact that we are all co-heirs. And as soon as, like has been previously stated, as soon as we've accepted Christ as our Savior, that puts you on the same level again as the person who has been here 50 years, 60 years. This church hasn't been around that long, but there's some churches that have, who's been a Christian all their life. There's no distinguishing time frame. And the reason why we know this is because there's never a point to where God looks at you as a Christian and says, you know what? You've now earned enough to not need the death of Christ. Instead, that death was always needed and will always be needed for you to receive the hope and glory and grace of God in the culmination of time. So that being said, your worth amongst each other is equal. There's no difference. Now, there may be a difference in maturity and there's need for discipleship, but again, that has nothing to do with your status. That has nothing to do with your God-given importance that he's placed on you that instead is designed to help you go out and be a representative of Jesus Christ so others may come in and experience that co-heirship too. Co-heirship, is that a word? We're going to roll with it. And your status does not give you liberties 
not afforded to others. And this is something that takes place when I was in the South. I was in the Panhandle of Florida, lived there for three or four years, and was part of a couple churches. And uh, some of these old Southern churches, there are rules for the members and the longstanding members, and then there's rules for everyone else. And there's that distinction that's made clear to you going in. In fact, you will see some of the families that have been in these churches for a long time, you'll see them get away with some crazy, crazy things. Some insane things. And based off of our previous discussion and the previous look at the verses we've had and also the previous chapter in Deuteronomy 21, we know that idea is a man-made idea. That just because you're able to carry the term Christian or the title Christian on you longer or have a longer legacy than most other people or some other people does not give you the liberty to take advantage of that. As Galatians 5, 13 through 14 says, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If there's any liberties to be taken due to our extended status as Christians or our mature status, however you want to label it, it is a liberty of service. One that should be renewed and, and revitalized over and over again. And then finally... We all deserve to be impaled on that tree. Not just as a punishment, but as a demonstration of God's wrath. But thank God, Jesus Christ was willing to take that punishment for us. Take that wrath for us. As Ephesians 1, 4 through 10 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, in things on earth. So what does that leave us with? What do we do with this message now, walking out of here? Well, as mature Christians, if you consider yourself that, we are never matured beyond our need for redemption. So in other words, don't let our maturity, like the stubborn son, become an excuse for ungodly liberties. If you're a young Christian, you need to remember, you're a co-heir with Christ, and that isn't determined by your previous state. That isn't determined by what people may say to you, what people may bring up within church walls or outside of church walls. 
God is the one who determines that. And now that you've been born again, you are that new creation that can walk in confidence in that, here comes that word again, coherence. Coherence. If it ain't a word, it's going to be one. And then if you're an unbeliever, if you're sitting in here and you don't know whether or not you are a co-heir, you don't know what your status is with God. You're in doubt of your internal security. You're in doubt on whether or not you belong on that tree, impaled as a demonstration of God's curse. Jesus became that public display of punishment and curse on your behalf. Therefore, your response should be to profess with your lips and believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And as a result, you want him to have lordship over your life. And in that way, you secure your status as a co-heir, as a son or a seed of Abraham, as one of the chosen ones that now has a new status that is not based on anything that is done beforehand, but has been based on the work that is done by Jesus Christ. So as I close in prayer, and Mark comes up here and closes out in his sultry tones, I want to remind you that every week, every service, Sunday or Wednesday, we are up here. If you need prayer, whether it be as a non-Christian, young Christian, or mature Christian, you want someone to join with you in that daily walk, you want someone to join you in that struggle, or you want someone to join you in that profession of faith, we'll be up here. We got elders in the room. I'm in the room. There's plenty of people here that are willing to partner with you and join you. All you have to do is take the step and come on up here and let us know. That being said, let's close in prayer. Dear Father, I pray that you fill us with your Holy Spirit. And through that filling, we are drawn to see how important you view each and every individual. Allow us to share in each other's burdens and disciple each other as equal heirs of your promise. Remind us that this is not a status that we have earned, but one that you have granted to all of those who have placed their faith in the work of your Son. You have demonstrated that we are all equally guilty, and now we are all equally redeemed. This is done through the death and resurrection of your son, which we are internally thankful for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.